morning. <clears throat> it is good to see you this morning as we open the Word of God together. I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we continue in a new series that we've just started and uh, looking forward to really getting into the text in the coming weeks together. As we look into 1 Thessalonians, I was taken back, uh, as we look into verse 3, I was taken back to uh, the Navigators. And if you're not familiar with the Navigators, the Navigators is a ministry that is located uh, right up, tucked right up into the mountains in Colorado Springs. And so uh, you go there, uh, they have a castle and the ministry that goes on there, but they have a dynamic ministry that reaches out to the military community that is there in Colorado Springs. And there was a conference a few years ago at, uh, that the Navigators was conducting, and the main speaker referred to what he termed as frontline and rear echelon ministries. The speaker was a combat veteran, one who had seen uh, many tours of actual fighting around the world, and he had vivid memories of the differences in attitude between those who are directly joining in battle on the front lines, and those who are indirectly involved a few miles behind in the rear echelon. If you know anything about military strategy, you know that there's a dynamic difference between front lines and rear echelon. Rear echelon is where the logistics and the supplies take place, and the front lines are those who are carrying the guns, driving the vehicles, and engaging with the enemy. The speaker goes on and he says, the guys on the front lines, they don't complain very much. They were too busy fighting the enemy. Camaraderie was built quickly. People had to work together by necessity. And it was a matter of life and death for them. They took their objectives and their strategy seriously, even if they did not understand all of the big picture. Successful execution was imperative. Little things, such as how good the food tasted, did not matter very significantly. What did matter was they were still alive to eat it. He continued on and he said, <clears throat> once you went a few miles behind the front, however, attitudes changed. Back there, griping was a way of life. Men complained about everything, the food, the weather, the officers, the mission, the tasks, something was wrong with everyone and everything. It is fascinating to me as we continue in Paul's prayer, in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he says this, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is writing to a church that is on the front lines. He's not writing to a rear echelon church. He's writing to a church that is vibrant, that is dynamic, that is on the front lines. They are carrying the weapons. They are engaging in battle. And persecution is rampant among the Thessalonian church, or at least in impacting them in a rampant way. This is a church that's very much not concerned about uh, the nuances. They are concerned about the fight. And the idea that we focus on as we study the second half of Paul's prayer 
on behalf of and for the Thessalonian believers is this. Believers should pursue faith, love, and hope because these characteristics produce an active and growing Christian life. It is not enough for the believer to sit in rear echelon areas. There is no such place in the Christian battle. There is no such place as the rear echelon for the Christian. It's all front lines ministry. You can pull yourself back, but you really have pulled yourself out of the battle, and the Thessalonian church did not do that. They engaged, and these three characteristics were what would define them. They would become virtues that you and I must also employ. And so we're going to spend all morning looking at these three as we find them in verse 3. The idea that we focus on is the one that is behind me. It is an idea that should drive us forward as we understand we are not rear echelon. We are front lines. And let us be as the Thessalonians were, vibrant and dynamic in that work. And vibrant and dynamic and pressing ahead for the cause of Christ. As we get into verse 3, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the examples that we have in modern day news. And by modern, I mean yesterday's news. Today's news, as we see these events on a global scale beginning to take place, as we recognize the war in Ukraine and uh, the front lines task, the hard, difficult tasks that are there on the front lines in a war and a conflict. Lord, it reminds us that we as believers in the Christian walk are constantly to be on guard. We too are engaged in a battle, and there is no room for rear echelon. The battle that we face is worldviews that our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, perhaps family, is assaulting or seeking to assault Christianity with, and recognizing that it does not stand at all, and yet it is difficult for us in that battle. There's a challenge because we are called to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And so there's a task that is before us, a task that is frontline ministry, but a task as well that is not pulling back. A task that removes complaining and griping. It removes uh, apathy because the mission is so important and strategic. And so this morning I pray that we would be those who take the strategy seriously that we would recognize that successful execution is imperative. And as we study Paul's praise regarding the Thessalonian church, that we would desire and that we would be found faithful and obedient in allowing these virtues to be named of us as well. Lord, I pray as well that we would not get caught in the pseudo-example of these, the, the false fronts. It is easy for us to sit back and put these three words in some way on a t-shirt or some way on a wall in our house and think that we have done the work of those virtues. Lord, challenge us here as well that we'd be obedient, that your name would be glorified in how we not only listen this morning, but we put this to practice. Give me the words to speak that they'd be from you as we are those who desperately need to be reminded of what is required of us, what is supplied to us by the Spirit of God, and what must be lived out uh, through our hands. So, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen. 
as we dive in. Paul is very specific. We are in the middle of a prayer. We started last week as we just began to introduce the book. And last week in verse 2, the scripture says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're jumping right into the middle of the prayer that Paul has prayed consistently, as we'll study in just a moment, on behalf of the Thessalonian believers. Paul is very specific. He's not generic in his prayers. He's very, very specific, and he gives thanksgiving to the Lord at the same time. So his prayers are pointed, and he's praising the Lord regarding this church. This is a prayer that is motivated by the work of God in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. And Paul is not writing this from some sort of separation where he says, I, I've never been to the church there. I've heard good things, but I've never been there. Paul is writing this specifically to those that he knows. As he's writing, he has images of faces appearing of Thessalonian believers. He remembers them. He knows the challenges that they're facing. And so Paul writes very specifically, and he prays very specifically. He prays a prayer that is motivated by the work of God in their lives and thanksgiving for the evidence of three virtues that have begun to simmer to the surface. The people he prays for are frontline Christians. And so are you, and so am I. We are frontline Christians, and Paul begins by reminding us of the first of three virtues. These are very familiar to us, but let us not allow the familiarity to distract us from the study of them. And so Paul gets in and he says that faith is lived out in the life of these believers. And this faith is evidenced by spiritual excellence. This is a significant theme for believers in this day and age because it's easy for us to be caught in something less than spiritual excellence. And there's a lot of ministries and there's a lot of ideas. We've discussed this as leaders in the church. There's a million things that we could do as a church or more. There's a, a million ministries we could engage with, but we don't want to do what, was, what is good. We want to do that which is excellent. We want to do that which is best. And so navigating from good to best is a difficult challenge, but it does become evident in the life of each individual believer who's engaged in it, as it has here in Thessalonica. And so Paul is encouraging this spiritual excellence, and we begin in verse 3, revealing, and really all the way back to verse 2, revealing how often Paul prayed. So as we're going to move towards spiritual excellence, notice how Paul prays. He says at the end of verse 2 that he's constantly mentioning them in his prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Paul's prayer life was full, as you can imagine. Can you imagine the prayer list? As Paul pulls out his prayer list and he's maybe thumbing through it on his iPad and he's looking all the way down trying to find, oh yeah, here's, here's the Thessalonian believers. It's been a while since I prayed for them. Paul's prayer list is very, very lengthy. He was never out of things to pray for, and yet he does not allow the prayer request to sit idle in the corner. He's actively praying for them, and this is his habit. He prays for them every time he remembers them. Now, the word is used here consistently. Some of your translations may use a different word to illustrate the same idea. 
that he was constantly in prayer for them. The idea of this word is that every time their names came to mind, he would pray for them. So throughout the day, you may think of somebody in the fellowship. And it may be with, oh yeah, i got to talk to so-and-so because I need to get this done and this done and this done. Paul would suppress the tyrant of the urgent, whatever it was that brought the name to mind, he would suppress that. And he would pray. And then he'd come back to that. He would say, now, before I called them, before I wrote them, before I go and talk to them, I'm going to pray for them first. That was Paul's habit. The word constantly is taken from the Greek culture, which would refer to somebody who had a constant nagging cough. So it doesn't mean that they were constantly in the state of coughing, but coughing wasn't very far removed. You've been around some who've had maybe uh, some sort of illness that caused them to cough on a regular basis. Well, that's how Paul's prayer was. Uh, At any moment, at any time, Paul may think of somebody's name and boom, he's off to praying. He's praying for them. That is the idea. It is, uh, it is that they are coughing on a regular basis. Paul is praying on a regular basis. That's the idea. That's this word for consistently, constantly. The outline of Paul's prayer provides a clear picture of effective Christian growth. We looked into verse two, or the majority of verse 2 last week. So in verse 3, we want to see the evidence, a clear picture of what Paul is getting at, which is the evidence of Christian growth. In a short period of time from Paul's writing of 1 Thessalonians, he's going to write to the church where he is presently seated. As Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians, he's in Corinth. In a few weeks after he leaves Corinth, he's going to write to the Corinthian church as well. And he's going to remind them, in the first of the letters to them, the passage that Scott read for us in our call to worship this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And he would use these three words that he's about to outline as Christian virtues for us, he would use them in connection with the use of gifts, the gifts of the Spirit of God, in the body of believers. We often think of 1 Corinthians 13, especially verses 4 through 7, as wedding verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. Oh, isn't that great for a wedding? Paul uses them in the context of the church. In this context. In marriage, should love be patient? Yes. <laughs> should it be kind? Yes. Should it be in the church? Yes, that was the context. When we pull it, put it in marriage, we actually pull it out. It's true in marriage, certainly. But we actually pull it out of the context in which Paul wrote it. Putting it back into the context in which Paul wrote it, uh, we recognize that marriage would be even higher than 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and the love that is displayed in marriage. Paul puts this love as the agape love that you and I are to be loving one another in and through. So when you walk in the doors on a Sunday morning, love is patient, love is kind, does not boast. That is the attitude that you are to have with one another when you see each other at the grocery store, at the post office, when you run into each other at the bank, or you're sitting behind one another in line at the stoplight. You're like, I know they're from church, but come on. (laughs) Love is patient. Love is kind. 
does not envy, it does not boast. Paul speaks of effective ministry resulting from, and in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Paul changes that order, and it'll be important, we'll see as we go through these three words this morning. He changes it, actually, here in 1 Thessalonians, for a good reason, as we'll see. But Paul is building to this case, and he's going to speak to the Corinthian church that these three things must be found among them. These are the same three things that he says must be found among the church at Thessalonica. And we know that it is a vibrant, dynamic church, bursting at the seams, exploding onto the scene to begin with, in the shadow of Mount Olympus, the core, basic place of Greek pantheism of Greek paganism, there is a Christian church exploding onto the scene. And Paul says, he praises the Lord for three virtues that are found among them. If you want to know what is pleasing to the Lord about church growth, if you want to know what is pleasing to the Lord about church health and Christian health and Christian growth, you will stop at verse 3 in this book and spend a little time here. It's not all that there is. But if you were to put these three words into faithful practice as a Christian, you will be found faithful on the day that the Lord calls you home. That, I don't believe, is overstated. But it means we have to dig deep into what the text says. Notice what Paul says as he moves on. He calls us to the spiritual excellence. He says, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your work of faith. He's calling them to spiritual excellence. He's praising the Lord for their spiritual excellence. And it starts when their work is motivated by faith. Now, we've confused this, or we've tried to confuse this. Actually, I would say Satan has tried to twist this within the church, and he's done a pretty good job in recent years. But Paul is not talking about pre-conversion. He's talking about post-conversion. This is after you come to know Christ as Savior, you are not to be rear echelon. You are to be front line. And how do I know you're to be front line? Paul commends the Thessalonians through his prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for their work of faith. This is front line's work. This is a relatively good translation here in ESV, and most, most modern translations translate it well, that identifies that the actions of the believer, that the actions that are being spoken of are of the believer after salvation, not before it. So Paul isn't saying work for your salvation. He's saying work because of your faith. So he's not referring to saving faith, but to the exercise of faith. What does faith look like on a day-to-day basis for those of you who already know Christ as Savior? Should there be a change? Yes. Because the world does not love the way that you are called to love. The love is not patient. The, love, the world is not kind. The world is quick to boast about themselves. They're quick to envy. Paul says that the believer is to be those who work because of faith. The word for work is an interesting word. It's obviously an action word. 
and it means to display itself in activity. So you can't work in inactivity, according to this word. You say, well, I'm doing a good job. I'm kind of holding down the, the chair. That's not work. You can't sit on the rear echelon areas and complain about the conditions of the church. That's not work. You can't say, well, that's for somebody else to do. I know he's my neighbor, and I know he needs the gospel, but somebody else will come along the way. That's not work. Paul is commending the Thessalonian believers for their work of faith. Faith lived out through them. The faith of the believers in Thessalonica is displayed for all to see by their actions which are congruent with faith. You know them as Christians because they act different than everybody else acts. They live it out. You recognize that they're followers of Jesus Christ, not the pagan idols that are represented by Mount Olympus. This is a day and age when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians where there's a stark contrast. One day they're worshiping idols, the next day they're worshiping the Lord, and there's a very clear difference. And there should be in you and I in our world as well. Paul commends them for putting their faith on display. And beloved, lest you say, well, you don't know what I have to face. I've got co-workers who don't like me when I put my faith on display. I've got people who are antagonistic against Christianity who are in my face when I put it on display. Can you imagine what life was like in Thessalonica? You think it's difficult today to live out Christianity. Live out Christianity in the shadow of Mount Olympus. In the center of Greek paganism. Paul says, not only should they do that, they were doing that. He's praising the Lord that they were doing that. Putting Christianity on display in their work. And it is going to impact faith. The faith of, or there's an impact of faith on the Christian life. One author writes this, Paul's faith is the total response of man to the goodness of God seen in the death and resurrection of Christ through which man is redeemed. Such a total response includes man's obedience to God and must therefore result in the activity on the part of mankind. Beloved, is God good? Then we should act like it. Then we should act like it. The goodness of God is what motivates us to faithfully serve the Lord. And that is front lines ministry. That is on the front lines, in display, or on display, recognizing that we will be assaulted for that kind of display. And the Thessalonian church was. Paul praises the Lord for them. Paul prays for the Thessalonian church, and he gives thanks for a church fellowship that is driven in obedience to God, that does not melt away, that stands firm. Individually, the Christian's obedience is due to faith. It is not passive, but active. Your faith is to be active. It should be evidenced. It should be seen. None of us who are true believers in Jesus Christ, not just at Byron Center Bible Church, but no believer, should ever have it said of them that they're Sunday morning Christians and Monday morning pagans. Because faith didn't change from Sunday to Monday. 
This should be lived out day to day, steadfast and firm. And so the first that Paul celebrates and he thanks the Lord for, the first virtue is their work of faith. It's pretty easy for us to put faith, hope, and love or faith, love, and hope as Paul puts it here in, Thessalon- in the letter to the Thessalonians. It's pretty easy for us to put that on a sign or to wear that on a shirt or a hat or uh, some other way to display it, a bumper sticker. Paul is not demonstrating bumper sticker theology. This isn't a pithy statement to put up onto the walls. We could certainly set it there as a reminder, and I'm not opposed to doing so, but let us not allow it to become so familiar to us that we forget its ramifications on frontline ministry, frontline Christianity. Because you leave here and you go to the front lines. You go to lunch someplace, you go to visit friends in the afternoon, or you go and do something else today. Uh, you wave at your neighbor as you pull into your garage. Frontline Christianity. And so let us be found as those who not only put it onto our walls, but live it out in our lives. To put it on display means it's actively flowing through us. Not just something we put on a display on our walls or shelves or shirt. Paul moves on. He says, your faith is on display through your work. And then this one, your love. It says, in the labor of love. This kind of love is not as we want it to be. We like the ooey-gooey, squishy kind of love because it's safe. But Paul says, the labor of your love. Paul is praising the Lord for toiling love. Hard work. More than just work. Toiling Well, familiar, and we're going to see later on, we're going to turn back to 1 Corinthians, but we are reminded again that the order that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. But Paul has changed that order in this letter, and he places love second. And as we recognize each of these virtues, that we recognize in each of them, I should say, there's an active element of love. There was an active element of faith. Faith being lived out on a day-to-day basis means Christianity is on display. Sanctification is growing in you. You're becoming more and more like Christ on a moment-by-moment basis. Love is the same kind of activity. This is actively being demonstrated because the world is going to give you all kinds of reasons to not love them. And so you're going to have all kinds of opportunities to exercise love towards them. And by the way, so will Christians. In fact, I've heard it said many times, and there's a a dynamic amount or a lot of information that is coming out about those who have left the church, you know, young people growing up, and they've been in the church all their lives, and they leave because, and the commonality, the common statement is there's hypocrites in the church. Where else would you expect to find them? There's hypocrites everywhere. The church is where we know that we're hypocrites. And we know that there's work to be done. Isn't it not hypocritical to not exercise love to even hypocrites? 
Is that not hypocritical to not exercise love? So it's pretty easy for us to look at the things of others and say, yeah, uh, they're not really doing it. They're not cutting it. They're weak Christians, and those weak Christians would probably say, yeah, and I'm worse than you know. I'm worse than you know. But the Christian who is faithful in practicing these three virtues will not allow their selfish ambition to get into the way of loving one another. Authentic, genuine love. This word that Paul uses is not the word for a romantic love, eros. It's not the word phileo, which is brotherly love, Philadelphia, brotherly love. It is the love as Christ loves us, agape love. You and I are called to do the hard work, the toiling work, and the labor of love and demonstrate that to other believers and to a lost and dying world. So now, having established that as our basis point, let us turn back, as we've alluded to, to 1 Thessalonians 13. We've already alluded to this, 1 Thessalonians 13, and reread, go back through the verses that Scott read for us a few moments ago. As we do this, we recognize again its context. And I remind us, because we've been taught so many times that the context is the love between a husband and a wife. The love that is to be found in marriage. And that is certainly true, that it is to be found in marriage. The love that is found in marriage is on another level than this. This is the love that is to be demonstrated within the body of believers. Within one another. As we turn here to 1 Corinthians 13, I want us to recognize what Paul is describing in the labor of love in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. This is how he describes the labor of love and think through the toiling work that this is. I'm going to read it slowly for us. We know it. We've memorized it. We probably have this written on a wall someplace too. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I was in the airport in Atlanta on a Thursday night. My flight was supposed to take off at 10.30. In the evening, I was supposed to land here somewhere around 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning, I was still sitting in the airport in Atlanta. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was still sitting in the airport in Atlanta. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, still sitting in the airport at Atlanta. And I began to notice, you know, there was some kindness and gentleness, and a lot of people wearing Christian slogans on their shirts. You know, it's, you're in the Bible Belt in Atlanta, and so there's a lot of Christians who are there. And I noticed that about 2 o'clock in the morning, rudeness and arrogance began to exude out of just about everybody. And there was certainly irritability, 
and resentfulness. And I could feel it welling up in me. Because all these people who are in line chewing out the lady, the poor lady who was the ticket agent or the gate agent, she is experiencing the wrath of all these people who are upset about their flight. And every flight was being canceled in Atlanta. There was, there was a million people in the airport, at least. It was as full as I've ever seen the airport there. And she's being chewed out. And pretty soon I began to think, what gives you the right to get to Grand Rapids before me? I need to be in Grand Rapids. I have things to do, people to see, places to go. <laughs> and then the guy next to me started to lose it. He was a young man. I could hear him talking on his phone with his parents. He was in his 20s, but uh, he was calling back home to mom and dad and, and asking them what he should do. And as soon as he says hello, he starts to yell at them for their advice. I thought, wow, um, you called them for advice and now you're yelling at them. They, they told you what they thought you should do and you're saying that's a dumb idea and he wasn't using that language. He was using far coarser language than that. And he was getting irate. The guy on the other side of me leans over and says, that guy's losing it. You may want to move. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at this young man and I said, you know, I travel a lot. These are things that just happen. For the next several hours, the Lord put me next to him to minister to him as I was struggling with this message. <laughs> I was wanting. I'm like, I'm in the airport. I don't have a lot of time. I'm trying to finish this message up. And here is this guy who won't shut up. <laughs> and then I came to this passage. Okay, Lord. <laughs> And I closed everything, and I ministered to him until 4.30 in the morning when our flight was eventually canceled. <laughs> and he walked out of there smiling. Me, not so much. <laughs> Love is patient. Love is kind. What is fascinating to me, remembering this passage, and, and I'll read verse 13 here as well, but what is fascinating to me is Paul is not calling out and praising the Lord for the Thessalonians' dynamic outreach programs. He's not saying, Thessalonians, you're doing a great job in your music. You're doing a great job in your theology. You're doing a great job in whatever. He does not call out those elements that you and I measure ministry success by or Christian success by. He says, you have labored well in love. Well, the rubber meets the road there, does it not? At 4.30 in the morning, in an airport in Atlanta, where I've been up all night, the rubber meets the road right there. We recognize the challenges right there. When we read the text, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, and you're listening to your plane mates, your travel mates down the road saying, yeah, I got my hotel vouchers and I got rebooked for an early flight in the morning, and I'm going, I didn't get either. And here I am, the one that has just been presenting Christ to my neighbor who was losing control several hours earlier. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What I want to focus on in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13 is this, so now faith, hope, and love abide. They reside. They are to be that which defines the Christian. It does not matter the circumstances you are in, you are in frontline Christianity. There's no time to complain about your flight. There's no time to complain about the guy who just is losing control. It's time to do Christianity, to live it out, to show love. And the idea is, not only is this toiling love, but it is sustained labor. It is not a, whew, got out of the airport in Atlanta, and now I'm back here, so now I can shut it down. This is sustained labor. Work may be pleasant and enjoyable. You may go home and you may be one, and I, I'm this way. I enjoy getting to work. I like to work. I like to work long, hard hours. I find satisfaction in that, and a lot of people say, you're nuts. <laughs> but I do. I do. But labor, that's a different kind of thing. Working, yes. Labor, eh. The idea that Paul has here is the, the imagery of strain and fatigue, exertion and exhaustion. You have run out the last ounce that you have. You've labored, sustained labor over long periods of time. In this phrase, the work of faith and the labor of love, is it, a, it is a distinctly Christian response. It is a distinctly Christian response to the goodness of God. The outside world cannot practice this. They cannot put this into practice. They can do work. They can work a lot. But are they going to be those who work of faith is evidenced? No, because they don't know the one that faith points us to. They don't know Christ. They're not allowing the Lord to be the, uh, the one that they follow, the one that they're obedient to. And the labor of love, they'll, they'll do acts of love and they'll talk about it and they'll put it on shirts and they'll walk walks and they'll do all kinds of things and they'll, they'll talk about love, but when it comes to laboring for love, they're going to be complaining, grumbling, impatient, arrogant, and rude. They're going to supplement their definition of love for the biblical definition of love. Whereas the Christian, they'll demonstrate Christ-like love, labor of love. The supreme expression of this kind of love is the cross of Calvary. Pastor, you don't, you don't know how much I've suffered to demonstrate love. And, and I understand. The supreme expression of this kind of labor of love is the cross of Calvary. I understand the struggles. I've lived them. I've been there. <laughs> I live them. Not just lived them. I live them. Along with all of us. And our supreme expression of this labor of love is our Savior on the cross. And aren't you thankful that He did not stop when it became inconvenient or when it became painful or when people were mocking Him or when people were assaulting who He is? 
the toil, whatever the form in this church in 1 Thessalonians, and going back to 1 Thessalonians, was ultimately God-directed, God-leaning. In fact, he says this in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, For they themselves report concerning you, that is, they've received a report of Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Macedonia and Achaia all have this testimony about the Thessalonian believers, that when they turn from idols, they turn to God. And so when they turn from living like the world, loving like the world, working like the world, having faith like the world, when they turn to working their faith through Christ and when they began to understand the great truths of this toiling labor of love, their testimony spread. A few months ago, we spoke of revival in our country, and there was a popping up of, oh, is this revival? Is this revival? And things are happening, and, and ultimately all of those fizzled out, and we don't hear anything about them today. But when the Thessalonians followed Christ, revival came to the Thessalonican city, the Macedonians all heard about it. The Achaeans all heard about it, and they reported it to Paul. Things are spreading. The work of faith, the labor of love, and finally the one that Paul is really focusing on the rest of the book, steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope, enduring hope. There's two elements about enduring hope, and then it all builds up to the last one, which is kind of the summation statement. But we first recognize that in order to have enduring hope, we have to have resolute confidence. Next week, not this week, but the week after, is family camp. I'm doing something that we haven't done at family camp before as, as a family, we're tenting. We're kind of glamping, but we're tenting. And so uh, we have a tent. And last year and the previous two years that we've been a part of family camp, we've had an RV. And so when it rains at night, I feel really bad for those who are tenting. Now I'm one of those. And so I can have on Monday, because we're going to go up a little bit early as a family, and, and so on Monday... I can say, I hope it doesn't rain. That's not resolute confidence. I have probably about as much knowledge as the meteorologists do about if it's going to rain or not. At least I can give you as close a guess as they can. But that's not resolute hope. I look at the forecast today and I notice that there's one day of rain and that's supposed to be on Friday and it's supposed to be a.m. showers. I'm like, okay, we could survive a.m. showers. I'm hoping that's all we get. But that's not resolute confidence. Resolute confidence is distinctly different. As I mentioned, Paul has a distinct purpose in the order of these three virtues. It's different than 1 Corinthians 13, where it was faith, hope, and love. Here it's faith, love, and hope. The believer's hope is one of the essential reasons that Paul is writing the letter to the Thessalonians. It is the reason he's going to build on. Every chapter of this book revolves around the hope that you and I as Christians have because of Christ. 
And that requires a resolute confidence. The believer's hope is the essential reason for Paul to pen right now. The word for endurance, or as your translation may say, steadfastness of hope, means far more than our English word. We think of endurance as those who just kind of grin and bear it. You can heap all kinds of, of burdens upon them and they passively bear the load. That's what endurance in English means, but Paul means more than that. It means a combination of heroic endurance that we just described and brave consistency to face various obstacles, trials, and persecutions that may befall the believer. In other words, this is uh, enduring hope that is marching forward. It's not just passively up against a wall, okay, stop hitting me. It is the moving forward in persecutions, trials, with brave consistency. And it stands in stark contrast to the idol worship of the Greek culture around. Whenever there's a little bit of pressure, and you see this in your business world, most certainly, there's a, a code of conduct, a moral code by which all people in your corporation or your business must abide by. And you have certain expectations. They're going to be truthful and they're going to uh, not be viewing things that they shouldn't be viewing on the internet and they shouldn't be sending emails that they shouldn't be sending. And so there's a number of things that are all part of this moral code. But you know very good and well that when push comes to shove, that moral code gets pushed out of the, out of the field of play. And pretty soon, things that should not be happening are happening. Well, I lied because... Because it was just more convenient. I didn't have to file a report if I just lied about it. Or I knew I would have gotten in trouble if all the details, it would have taken too long to explain all of this. They wouldn't have given me the time, so I just lie about it. There it is. The Christian, the Christian endures in our steadfastness of hope without giving ground like that. Without giving those moral grounds. This is a church in Thessalonica that would stand firm against the various persecutions that had and would continue to come against the church. They would stand there and the only thing they had to do was recount, uh, recant on Christ. I'm not following Him. That's all. They would have been set free. And yet they stand resolute. How do you have resolute confidence in hope. That's because we're anticipating the future. We're anticipating the future. At its core, not only is hope expressed in this kind of endurance, but it has an object of anticipation. Our object of anticipation is hope that God will do what He said He's going to do. The gospel had brought them a steadfast, and so this is in the life of the believer. It does not mean that it does not wane or struggle, or that we have temptations to abandon. We certainly have all of those. But when you are practicing the virtues of basic Christianity, which these three are, then you begin to understand that hope is steadfast and enduring. 
it's different than the hopelessness of the pagan world that is around us, that is dreadful and dark. We're not fearful. We're anticipating. We're not concerned of retaliation. We're looking for reward. We're not concerned about what others may view of us or dying with the most toys. We are concerned that our Savior says, well done, good and faithful servant, on the other side of eternity from where we are today. But the hope of the Christian, very different from the hopelessness of the pagan, anticipates the future. But biblical hope, and listen carefully, biblical hope is always something that is completely certain. When you encounter the word hope in the pages of Scripture, and it's speaking of the believer's hope, it is always something that is completely certain. It is more true than your presence in this room this morning, or at least as true. And how is that? Paul gets into that because he says that our hope, at the end of verse 3, our hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul defines for us Christian hope as a summary statement. Our faith, hope, and love, or as Paul puts it in this book, faith, love, and hope, have as our object the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you work out faith? Why do you do the hard work after coming to know Christ as Savior to continue to grow in sanctification? By the way, that's empowered by the Spirit of God. So, Why do you submit to the direction of the Spirit of God and go where God wants you to go and do what God wants you to do? Working out that, working through that. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you toil in love? Why at 4.30 in the morning when all you want to do is get home and sleep in your own bed? Do you speak to the guy who's losing control next to you? And by the way, that's a small thing. That's only one moment of toiling. When we're toiling for love, this is day in and day out. This is beyond hard work. This is laborious work. Why do we do that? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we have steadfastness, unmoved, uh, solid hope? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot possess these three virtues if your eyes are directed anywhere else. Say, but but I have it on my wall and I wear it on my shirt and and I have it as a bumper sticker, faith, hope, and love, and, and it's everywhere. I don't care. And I don't mean that harshly. But it matters nothing if it's on the walls, if it's not active as you displaying it. Paul does not celebrate the Christian themes nailed to the walls of the Thessalonian church. He celebrates their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness in hope because they were faithful and obedient to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Christian is instructed to abide, as I already said, abide in these three virtues. 
it is critical that we put them into practice. Each one, each one of these words has been given a descriptive action to go along with the call, the command. So you have the, the directive, which Paul is proclaiming as thanksgiving, and so let us keep it in its context. He's saying this is already true in the Thessalonian church. For us, we're saying let it be true of us, too. And if it's going to be true of us, we, we can't just say faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love. We need to say, let us be working out. Let us demonstrate out our faith. Let us labor in love, not avoiding scenarios where we can, but engaging in them so that we would faithfully practice 1 Corinthians 13 and living it out to an unbelieving world, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And being especially gracious, and especially loving, and especially kind, and especially selfless to those who know Christ as Savior. Let us be those who recognize that it is because of Christ. These, and listen carefully, if you get one thing, write this down at the bottom of your notes. These three virtues are not mere personal aspirations or yearning for something to come true. But it is something certain because it is based on what God has said He will do. So why do we live out working faith? Why do we live out toiling or laboring love? Why do we work out steadfastness in our hope? Because God said He's going to do something. Because God said He's going to fulfill His promises to us. And that is more certain than you and I sitting in this room this moment. If God said it, He will do it. And so therefore it's lived out through us. The church in Thessalonica was not a rear echelon church. Their battle-tested character was clear and evident, hardened on the front lines. The faith, love, and hope of those on those front lines faithfully serving the Lord set for us an example to follow. An example that Paul is going to pull out and tell the church in Corinth, you know, the one that had all kinds of problems, sin that was named among them that wouldn't even be named among the pagans, divisions that existed among them that would be following after Apollos or Cephas or Jesus or Paul. Divisions rampant, sin rampant. Paul would write to them, practice these three. Have them abide in you. Faith hope, and love. And the greatest of these for the Corinthian church for sure was love. Paul says to the Thessalonian church in his prayer, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, constantly praying for you, and I praise the Lord for your work on faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Paul says, it's already named among you Thessalonians. He told the Corinthians to get their act together and practice those three things. Where are we? Where are we? Are you more like the Thessalonian believers? Or are you more like the first Corinthian believers? Would Paul say 
upon remembrance of you, I thank God that you have demonstrated your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or would he tell you, get it together and put these three things into place? Christian, I don't care where you're at in the maturity scale. We need to be those who are putting these three things into practice because you are frontline Christians. And the front line, while some days may seem a little further away than other days, is more pressing upon you at this day than at any other day of your life. Be front line. Make sure these three things are found in you, these three virtues, faith, love, and hope. Faithful, faithfully serving the Lord. Setting an example for others and eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior. And may that be our earnest call. Let us be those who eagerly await our Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these three virtues. It's easy for us to be those who are distracted by the pressures of life and the challenges that come along the way, but we find in these three the essential elements of productive Christianity, frontline Christianity. Lord, it's easy for us to dismiss these three and to say, well, I've got them on a list, I've got them on a shirt, I've memorized them. Sure, I'm putting them into practice, but I pray that today your Spirit would convict us of these areas where we have failed to work on faith to labor in love, or to have steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, draw it out of us. Teach us. Cause us to be more like the First Thessalonian church than the church at Corinth. May we be those who are found with these three abiding in us, faithfully lived out. That you would receive the glory. That we would see the evidence of it in one another and encouraging and sharpening, iron sharpening one another with iron and all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Lord, we see it. It's here. It's today. We pray that it would be today. And we pray that it would be demonstrated in the way that we live, act, and think as we depart from here. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. Cause us to rise together with one voice in unison, unity as we glorify you together, practicing these three things right now in worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen.